This week on a lively experiment, the governor has plans to start spending some of the billion plus dollars in federal COVID money. But how long will it take to get the money out the door? Plus, the legislature turns up the heat on a controversial multi-million dollar contract given out by the McKee administration. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast, retired URI political science professor Maureen Mowgli, and former state representative Dan Riley. Welcome, everybody. It is great to have you with us this weekend. I'm Jim Hummel. Rhode Island is the only New England state that hasn't distributed any of its latest round of federal COVID funds, totaling more than a billion dollars. On Thursday, Governor McKee said he'd like to get 10% out the door right away to help with affordable housing, child care, and for small businesses. But the legislature has to give its blessing, and the House Speaker does not seem in a hurry to bring his membership back to the state house. Uh, Bill, you were there yesterday. I know the governor's been talking about this. It's interesting, you know, the, the irony is Governor Mundo had full reign over this and all of a sudden the legislature is, is deciding, oh no, we wanna have some say on this. That's right, and I even bumped in with Steve Clampkin to the speaker yesterday as we were leaving. He was pulling into the parking lot. We kind of ambushed him briefly. <laughs> They're not in a rush to make this happen, and I think that that's a critical factor in all of this. It could just be performative at this point as far as what the governor is pushing out. It's not clear whether or not this is even remotely reasonable that it's going to be taken up, certainly this fall, inside the GA. But to, So to wait until they convene in January? I guess so. Yeah. Why, why do they not want to come back? Maureen? I mean, I don't know. I'm not so sure that, I mean, I applaud the fact that they're taking their time and that they're not succumbing to every request and so forth. But this seems to make, make sense. It's a piece of it. You've got to get the money out the door to these people. And I, I was taken by the fact that McCaffrey was at a, a child care center and the press, Senate, press, Senate majority leader McCaffrey, and as well as... Um, uh, President Ruggiero talked about supporting this. And um, my thing is, I, I can't see why they wouldn't do just this, get it out the door, get it to the people. And then um, the most important thing is take a step back. We can talk about that. We can't just send, keep sending out checks. Mm. We have to have a larger plan. We have to think big. We have to do it carefully. But I have no problem with getting this money out the door. And I think they should do it quickly if they're going to do it at all. The idea is to help people in the very short term. But there's got to be long-term solutions to this. But we can talk about that. You know, I think th th there are two considerations here for me. One is that th these, these choices here of spending the money and having legislative oversight and appropriation are not mutually exclusive. They can both happen, and quite frankly, they should. Um, I think from the governor's standpoint, he needs to have an actionable plan. If the money goes out, what is it going to accomplish and in what time frame is it going to accomplish that and what's the plan for the rest of the funds? He has to communicate that clearly to the legislature through you know, a, a supplemental budget and then you know, look for them to act because now we know what the return on that investment is going to be. If we sit on this money for too long, I, I wonder what's the purpose of COVID money when we could be out of this pandemic or it could become an endemic and things could be very different. And yet we're supposed to be spending this money for short term relief. And it relief. doesn't have to be spent for 
two, three or four years. Right. So that, and, to and your that, point. And that leads to the second consideration, which I think is the bigger one long term, which is we have to be very careful about making sure this funding is not used to support programs that are going to create long term obligations for the state. Now, the funding comes with a lot of rules, and so you have to be very careful on how you spend it. But we have to make sure that this does not add to our structural budget because it will lead to deficits once this money runs out. And it's, and it's a lot of money. I completely agree. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we had right care in the Bruce Sunland administration. Everybody had health insurance, all children. It's gone. We couldn't afford it. So I think that's, and that's to my point about while they can do some short-term stimulus, and I agree with that, and they ought to get it out fast, the point is there's got to be a larger plan. Some of these monies can be made for matches for bigger projects. There's a lot of things we can do with this money and a lot of the other money that you have to think big about this, Trans mass transit, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And you know, it, there's a lot of areas, when you talk about, like when you talk about childcare, Sure, give these women uh, you know, at the child care centers, give them an extra bonus. We really have to think through a long-term solution to how we ca ca characterize child care, what we pay for. Uh, one of the options is, which is the most logical one, is there should be a federal program, Social Security, a child care subsidy. Romney wants it. The Democrats want it. Those are the kinds of things, I realize this is federal funds, but those are the kinds of things that we have to be creative about because we can't keep spending checks. We can't just send out checks. That's I also wonder the hesitation coming back is, and I've heard this from some of my sources up at the State House. If you come, you can't come back for just one thing. That's and so, where is marijuana? Where is, you know, they talked about a fall session. Well, here we are. We're almost in mid October, yeah, right? Yeah. So, is that really going to happen? Policeman's Bill of Rights. And, and then the progressives. Joe Sakarchi's got, so what do you think about all that dynamic and mash of, is that why they're not going to want to come I think back? that's a big factor in, in why they're not going to come back right now. But just taking a step back, I think also, if you look at the child care minimum wage supplement, yeah, you're going to have to use that as a bridge. There's no way that you're going to be able to keep sending out checks to child care workers to supplement their wages for the, in the long term. But there are some things that are potentially going to build towards the long term. If you look at the housing side of all of this, there, there's an opportunity for developers or existing property owners to convert existing housing stock into affordable housing, lowercase a. So I even asked about, I asked Commerce Secretary Pryor about, what about people who own these Airbnbs? You know, they have these micro hotels all around the state mm -hmm. that drains housing stock. Could they then use some of these funds to sort of supplement themselves and return that housing to the affordable housing stock? They can. So that sort of tees things up for the future. You know, you get a conversion in terms of what these properties are used for and, you know, might reset the housing market going forward. That, can I just add, I sure. think that's a great illustration. In other words, the, the, the immediate income is going out to sustain rent control, to sustain people for rent subsidies in terms of not getting evicted. But we need a long-term plan, build the housing, okay, concrete transformative stuff, and create these kind of avenues where long-term affordable housing is part of the mix. And we should use the money, a lot of money, to do that. No, I think a lot, all these are great ideas. I don't know what they have to do at all with the pandemic. And I think this has become a wish list in many regards for a lot of different programs because there's a lot of money attached to it. 
I think again, if you can if you can use one-time funds for one-time expenses or major capital projects, that you can get a return on that investment, and the state taxpayer has to contribute very little or no money. I think it's great. I still don't think that has anything to do with the pandemic either. My town's but using a million dollars to upgrade the waste treatment plant. Yeah, well, sure. So what does that have you to know, do has, with it? Has nothing to do with the pandemic, but take the money. Why not? It's free money, right? You know, none of it will ever come due uh, but um, because they're giving it to us. But I think, our, you know, you can talk about the efficacy of, of that and why the feds are doing that. But if we have the money and we can spend it, let's spend it wisely. But don't do it in such a way that we're going to find ourselves with new entitlement programs, which we can't afford, which are going to lead to debates, which no one wants to have in the General Assembly. If they think a fall session on marijuana is bad, wait until they create wage supplements that become a permanent subsidy and cost us hundreds of millions of dollars, when we still, when you take out all of these things that have been papered over the budget, still have a structural deficit. I know, I know we could do an hour on this, but you sat on House Finance Committee all those years that, oh, what cobbled together, we got to bridge a $200 billion or million dollar gap. If you were on House Finance Committee right now, or you could wave the magic wand, what would, give me two examples of what you'd like to see this money done that would not add to the you know, an investment, a capital expenditure, whatever. What could we use this for? Yeah, I mean, to the extent we could, I think transit, transportation, big dollar items that are that present such a sticker shock to us normally that we can't get it done. But the most efficient, efficient way to do it would be to get it done quickly. It's a one-off. You know, it's a one-off expense. I think, you know, housing would be good if you could capitalize an investment vehicle that the state could use in perpetuity. It's one thing to say we could take federal money and build something, and it's a capital asset and we could keep it. But how can you turn that into a more transformative program using that one-off money to get it started? You know, $200 million could get us really far, and the state isn't in a position to cut a $200 million check in any budget. What I will say is I think that the pandemic was the magnifying glass that showed the inequities and the major problems in our society. So if nothing else, we look at what happened during COVID-19, healthcare, housing, transit, access to education, access to childcare. These issues were exposed as deeply flawed and in need of a solution. So that's where the tie-in with the pandemic is in that We've got to correct these inequities in our society immediately for a number of reasons, whether it's moral or also just in a practical sense, it's fiscally irresponsible to continue moving along as we currently are going into the next 50 years. There's no doubt about that. It was also Republicans voting for billions of dollars in massive spending very quickly without a lot of questions, which normally wouldn't happen. And that was really unique to the pandemic. You want the last word on this? No, I just want to say I agree with both of you. I agree that we have to have these long-term solutions that are built in so that we don't have a check afterwards. But I also agree um, that it is, we have to do some of these things in terms of housing, in terms of childcare, that exposes what we need to do the, the pandemic exposed it, but these are the kinds of things. The money is there not just to adjust a stopgap. They're not giving you a billion dollars just to say, we'll pay some out checks. They're talking about creating programs that ameliorate these instances, uh, and th- I think that's a legitimate use of the money. All right. The uh, Senate Oversight Committee ramped up into high gear to take a look at this controversial contract from the ILO group with Governor McKee. There's been a lot of uh, conversation about this. It looked initially, Dan, let me start with you, having been in the legislature, it looked three weeks ago like there was going to be nothing. This was going to kind of go through. And I don't know whether the leadership was hearing from its membership. We need to hear more about it. But from the initial couple of hearings, it doesn't look so good for the McKee administration. Well, I think part of it was the McKee administration got off to a bit of a rough start over the summer with the first chief of staff 
controversy. And so I think the legislature was a little more skeptical when, you know, it, it hasn't been alleged that this has to do with the governor being personally involved or, in, you know, it, to the extent where he is getting money or anything like that or is involved with the contract and it's his company. But all of a sudden it became we have to be a lot more skeptical about associates of the governor getting involved and now getting millions of dollars. And then when they looked at the money and the the company getting incorporated two or three days before they get the contract and all of these things, they say, wait a minute, there's, there's way too much smoke here. We have to dive deeper, even for Rhode Island, even if it is going to be, you know, considered legitimate, you know, if they are, are allowed to have this contract here, why did they get it? What's the purpose of the contract? Once you get past how it was given, what are we spending this money for exactly? Is this just another case of taking seemingly free money and wasting it on consulting contracts to do what exactly? Right. And Lou DePalma, the head of the oh, Senator Lou DePalma, the head of the Oversight Committee, said, "If we're really not getting our bang for the buck, should we cancel the contract?" Right. And I think it was. I think you're t- talking about. It's gone from a key. Let's face it. It was distant to him mm-hmm. to the question about how we're doing these contracts, and that's the business of the legislature. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good that we're looking at this. And you know, in terms of McKee, Wendy Schiller said something that was very interesting. You know, he came. He was shut out. In other words, in terms of state government and what was going on. And he came in with a rather parochial group and he started to make and, you know, he was barely in office. One presumes now that he'll branch out, get a statewide coterie of people who can give him a a better political feel for what's going on. I think it's going to be I mean, it's going to be there'll be an ad for it in the in the election. But I think it's going to be less about him and more about how this process is. Yeah. Yeah, You know, it was interesting on Tuesday during his regular press conference because of course he has, to keep track yeah, he's got the COVID presser, we got right. this, Thursday, we got that, Tuesday. whatever, the, re- the normal press conference, the governor dropped the ILO group as if he, he, he was touting it and some of the work that they had done. So he's shifted and their camp has shifted fully into this is a great thing for Rhode Island. Look how smart it was to bring in McGee and all, and all of the associates that, that we've mentioned here to create this group. This is going to be wonderful. And at the end, I'm going to be remembered for a positive decision with respect to ILO. But then you've got McGee and McKee, so that's a little confusing. <laughs> right, right, right. But I and also thought... Uh, McKee involved, too, at the yeah. Department of Education, remember. There's I another do McKee. remember that. Yeah. So, the, But the interesting thing is is that he took some of them with him to his school now. So, I mean, yeah. he's trying to fly the flag. What's he yeah, doing here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. But I do think, uh, you know, I do think uh, he stepped back from that. I mean, I realize that. He made a mistake. It was a blunder, but he wasn't directly involved. And as I say, it'll be used as a campaign thing. Uh, inevitably. But I think the focus on the contracting is the more important thing. I have great respect for Louis de Palma, and I think looking into this this way um, is really a good thing. You know, I think the contracting process, you know, here may have actually followed the letter, may not have followed the letter, and it appears bad. But beyond the contracting process, I think this brings calls into question some of the governor's management abilities, which is, I think, is the larger issue. If he thinks that this is the right way to run a process, if this is the right way his office is set up in terms of staffing a process and managing it and ensuring that conflict checks are done and just the appearance of impropriety is avoided, then this doesn't bode well for him. He has a tight time frame to really ramp up. He's a lot of money coming in, but he's under a lot of pressure to do things, and he has 15 people running against him now in a Democratic primary. He has to show he has the chops to run the state. And when you can't run an internal process that's really run by career bureaucrats, it's not actually, shouldn't be run by political appointees from the governor's office, that doesn't bode well for his ability to, you know, get a ne- the, his next real first 
budget that he owns in, manage state agencies and, and run this, because this is how government works every day. Mm -hmm. All right. This mm -hmm. is the uh, first week in several weeks that we haven't had somebody announce for governor. <laughs> it seems like every week somebody was... Not over yet. Yeah, well, that's, that's well, it's Friday morning, so uh, I don't know how you define the week. So maybe, but, but as of this taping, uh, Maureen, the governor's race, so we've had... Um, we can talk about the Democratic side. Let's talk about the Republican side first, because Dave Darlington, who is not a household name, has he's kind of said, but he hasn't announced. All eyes are on Blake Filippi, and will he run? So I know you don't, unless you have the inside track with Blake. What's it going to take to get him? You know, him it's in? interesting. Um, I think it's, it's just interesting. I think the media created him. In the sense that people, you know, you're looking around for possible people. I think I even said it. I think I said, oh, well, what about Blake Filippi? And so... It may have begun with you, Maureen. No, no, I don't think that. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is that he seems sort of on the fence. He's not jumping in. And, and, and the other thing is I heard, I've heard uh, comments from the uh, Republican state leadership that there's a special candidate that's coming. I don't know what that's about. Got any inside track on that? Any inside track on, on, on that? On a special candidate who's <laughs> no, coming? That there's yeah. a, no, that there's a, there's a candidate who's highly qualified. It's going to be a really good yeah, showing. Yeah, from my understanding. His name's Dan Riley. Yeah, yeah, I, can, yeah, right, I can make right. a statement now. I categorically deny. Categorically, and I will refuse the nomination. No, um, no, I, you know, I, the, the party's been in conversation with several people. Um, the, the general view, and, and, and yes, they, they're been high-level conversations with, you know, one or two people that I think are, are going to be very solid candidates. Part of our, I, I know we look at this as a two-party race, but next year, especially the beginning, is going to be defined by a very colorful Democratic primary. And mm -hmm. we're very quickly going to revert to the background, whether we like it or not. And so we have a very different election to play on the Republican side. And we're going to field a very competitive candidate. They're going to be out there. Um, and they're going to be playing to a statewide electorate with a very different message than most people are going to be hearing with several very well-funded Democrats. And let Democrats beat themselves up? You know, one thing we learned at the State House is as much as we're the opposition, um, when the Democrats start fighting each other, you sit down. You right. may have the greatest <laughs> argument in the world. You sit down. There's nothing you're Did going you to gain. Did you get that memo there. to Joe Trillo? I we would <laughs> we would say that to Joe, and they would say that to me. It wasn't yeah, just yeah. so you would sit down. And back then, it wasn't nearly as bad of internecine warfare as there is today. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be a very colorful Democratic primary. Quite frankly, we're not going to break through it, and we don't have to. And so we're going to have a candidate roll out on their own timeline, and it's going to be different than that That's, of the Democrats. Yeah, and to your point, I mean. Blake Flippy, he's the House Minority Leader. He's got a number of different businesses. I mean, he might be riding around Block Island right now in some pickup truck with the windows down, you know, having a great time. Does he really need to run for governor in what will definitely be a losing campaign? I mean, the Rhode Island GOP right now is, it's just in such a weak position, in my opinion. And the fact that they haven't been able to field a credible candidate that could present an alternative to a moderate or even semi-progressive uh, at this point, it speaks volumes. And I, I think don't it's know. A problem. I, I would say that history would say otherwise, that uh, Ed Dupree, um, Link Amon, Kachiri, there is a path for a, a Republican. And I'm not saying what I'm taking issue is with that it would almost be a losing. W until you get into the race, you don't know. And you also don't know what's going to happen with the perceived front runner, Governor McKee, if there's going to be more blips. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying the Republicans is going to be a cakewalk, but this has been a state that for whatever reason, the governor, I think a lot of people view it as, you know what, the legislature is so overwhelmingly Democratic. Let's have a little check and balance here and let's vote for a Republican. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think, you know, when you think about it, we have tw we had 12 years of Republican gubernatorial uh, executive um, 
dominance, grain <laughs> dominance. Okay, but they they kept the Democrat, Democrats kept nominating a very progressive person, mm -hmm. and so uh, there's the kind of path. If this this primary gets so beat up uh, in terms of what's happening, to sit back and don't forget this is going to be a statewide election. I, I agree with Dan, and to sort of like have a. A high, if it's a highly competent, credible person come in and say, after all of this, um, you know, look at what we're saying. But I think uh, it, go ahead. We beat Merth York, okay? Yeah. We, we don't beat Gina Raimondo with private sector labor endorsements. And that, also, that's it and in, Joe Trillo made a good point last week. The demographics are not what they were 20 years ago. Well, just look at the East Greenwich School Committee special election. There's a purple region or municipality. That swung Democrat, even in a time where people are screaming and yelling about critical race theory and all of these types of things. So I think that the stain of Donald Trump still lingers and is still a problem for even moderates and independents here in Rhode Island. And if you have a Dan McKee, I think he's the de facto conservative. Now, they've also got this independent candidate that's going to run as the, uh, you know, the uh, QAnon slash anti-vax candidate. You know, how much does that movement suck up as well? We look back at 2018, the whole Joe Trillo move, where obviously 4% wasn't, Joe Trillo's 4% wasn't enough for Alan Fung to overcome Gina Raimondo. But there's a splintering in conservatives in Rhode Island that the fringes don't see the conventional party as conservative enough. But I think most Rhode Islanders, even moderates, even very soft Republicans, are still weary of the post-Donald Trump GOP. You know, I, I get that argument, but I think the split amongst the Democrats in Rhode Island, just because their numbers are so much greater, is far more significant. I agree. When you look at conservative Democrats getting dominated in legislative primaries by co-op or non-co-op or whatever they're called this week, uber-progressive candidates, they're very fearful of that. And when you have a very progressive now candidate a la Merth York in a gubernatorial general against a Republican, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps moderate, perhaps even more right of center, mm -hmm. they look very different in comparison to the traditional conservative Democrat who is very difficult to beat with a Republican. But the Democrats are changing, and the more you see that in those races, you're going to see uh, greater reception for Republican candidates by registered Democrats. They may not change parties. We may not have the sudden realignment. We won't have the sudden realignment. But you're going to see them start to pick up vote share because they're just turned off by the Democrat in that race. And, and that's going to happen at the general level, too. And it's going to happen, I think, to a greater effect and faster than any Trump effect is going to linger and hang out and hurt the Republicans because the, the progressives have so much energy behind them. And also, uh, there's a lot of Trump supporters here. <laughs> there's a lot of Trump I mean, I'm astounded. I'm just astounded that it keeps up. And so there's that. Uh, that th there's but it's those a lot people. fewer than they were who no, voted. No, but the fact is, there's a, there's a contingent that talks about wanting to have a conservative, uh, wanting to have a conservative candidate. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, I think that I think you're right. I mean, if they come up, I don't expect that's going to happen. But if they look, if Matt Brown would have win, <laughs> the win the nomination. Yeah, it don't is, hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. But th those kinds of things, or a really contentious kind of thing, I think it's a long shot. But I think the path that you're describing is not. Oh well, it's 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 not it's not a sure thing. It's a it's a possibility, mm -hmm. and it's and the other thing it does, 
is if they come up with a credible candidate after all this infighting among the Democrats, um, it, it boosts the, the, the GOP, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Final word, and then we'll get to outrageous. I mean, I think it comes down to whether or not Governor McKee stubs his toe anymore. Um, and it's not as if Secretary of State Gorbea or Treasurer Magaziner are, are these uber progressives. I mean, a lot of people see them as, mm -hmm. you know, inside track establishment Democrats. I get they're not Charlie Lombardi either. You know, there's a difference there. But um, the, the idea that uh, Dr. Munoz or Matt Brown are somehow going to win this primary and then create a Mirth York of 2022, um, I think that's, that's far-fetched. I think democracy is way better and we should have a credible GOP candidate a credible moderate Democrat and a credible progressive candidate. And I think everyone would be better for that. I just don't know if it's going to materialize here in, in 2021-22. Okay, let's do uh, outrageous and or kudos. Maureen, let's start with you. Uh, I have a short outrage. The, the basketball players that cheated on their forms, I mean, it's so like creepy. Like they didn't have enough money, Like right? they didn't have enough money. It's so creepy. But I have a comment I want to make. I just want to reiterate this. I don't want to be, a, you know one-horse person, but we've got to focus on big, big issues when this money comes out. We've got to be careful about it. And mass transit, we've got to look really careful about it. There's, there's plans for the, you know, the, new, the, the Boston Providence line that we can do now. And there's also uh, plans in the works that maybe solve the problem of the bus distribution. And it'll cost money, but it's the kind of thing we have to invest in. Dan? I agree with everything, by the way, you just said, but that's not. I my was not looking forward I, to that I, this week. I was hoping I, we'd I, have a little more no, disagreement. But, no, here's, I was going to. My outreach was going to be all these people announcing for lieutenant governor, which is, <laughs> remains a useless <laughs> office. But uh, I think more importantly, on the federal level, this week you saw Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice announce that they were going to investigate certain incidents of threats made at local school board and other local government meetings as incidents of domestic terrorism or extremism. I think this is a very slippery slope to go down. Think if this had happened this time last year and Donald Trump's Justice Department was announcing Squelching we're going free to... free speech. I think it has enormous chilling effect. And look, if threatening statements are made, there's no excuse for that. It, it could very well be criminal activity and should be investigated as a state-level crime. You bring the federal government into these things, it, it, the slippery slope becomes a cliched phrase, but it very much is one in this and, case. And don't you applaud people not going over the line but getting involved in their school committees Certainly. like they haven't before? Certainly. And the school boards have to grow a spine if they are concerned with comments that are not threatening but are forceful and emotional and just happen to be disagreeing with them. Exactly. Bill, what do you got? How about the Senate District 3 race? Five excellent candidates yeah. that ran good campaigns. I moderated a debate with all five candidates, a lot of positive exchanges. Congratulations to Sam Zurier for winning that race. And, and it came down to his political connection, his family connection, and the wants of that, dis of that Senate district in terms of fiscal policy and public safety. Having said that, that was a great race to have a couple of progressive voices, a couple of more moderate voices, um, different backgrounds, people from out of state, people from in the city, people who grew up in the neighborhood, et cetera. The response from some of the progressives right now, online, in the papers, in terms of not congratulating Sam Zurier on his win, pointing fingers at each other and saying, well, you know, you're not a real progressive because you ran against a candidate against our real progressive and back and forth. This is nonsense. It's dangerous. It's disingenuous. It's only going to lead to more of a collapse in terms of progressive ideas making their way 
to the mainstream audience that is ultimately going to win votes. I think that's elections. great. I really, uh, Sam Zurier, by the way, it's not just his family. He was in the legislature. He was on the, on the city council. And I mean, all those nights he took phone calls from people exactly. about my garbage. He that is, counts. He is, right? I think he's a first-rate choice. And I think you're, you, to, your, to what you're saying, people in that district are looking a little at the bigger picture here. He talked about providence. And it wasn't, it was less about identity and it was less about it, it, things. And I do agree with you. I think, first of all, one of the other things is just quickly, uh, the mobilization of the progressives was terrific. Amazing. I mean, they're, they're in this game, but I think they have to play it the way they should and not go to down the line the way, the way you talked about. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Bill, nice to have you back. Great to be And back. Maureen and Dan, good to see you. Uh, folks, come back next week. Maybe somebody will announce for governor, somebody else between now and then. Um, we appreciate you watching the show. If you can't watch it Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you get your favorite podcast, along with the Bartholomew Town podcast. Um, come back next week as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.